0: Well, good morning again, and welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. It is a blessing for us to be together, to sing songs uh, that, that remind us of the great truths that are found in the scriptures, uh, that we can comfort each other with these uh, timeless truths that God cares for us and that God takes care of us. We're going to continue our worship this morning by thinking about those thoughts a little bit more, uh, thinking about those truths a little bit more. As we read earlier in our call to worship, the comfort that we find in our Lord is a comfort that we are able to share with others also. And as we think more about this call, this responsibility that we have to comfort one another, let us do so by turning in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray that uh, we, as we think a little bit more about what you are going to do in the future, that, Lord, we would, uh, we would be comforted and that we would also be encouraged to comfort other people. We pray that you would be honored and glorified as we study your word together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it has often been said that ignorance is bliss. But for those of us who have lived a little while, we know that ignorance is not always bliss. If we're caught in our ignorance, we can make assumptions about situations and begin to act and prepare for certain scenarios unfolding when, in fact, what we thought was true is actually not true. And this is essentially the premise of many Disney Channel shows in the early 2000s, and it continues to be a trope in sitcoms today where people think they know something, right? They've overheard a conversation. They, uh, heard, a context out of, uh, they heard a conversation out of context, and they think, oh, no, something bad's going to happen. I have to do something. I have to fix it, right? And they get all worked up about it. They come up with these convoluted plans to, to solve the situation, and they actually make it worse, they make it worse. And eventually they have to go and you know, repair relationships and repair the damage that they that they've that they've caused. Um, but it's because they've acted in ignorance. Right? They thought they knew something and then they acted in ignorance and then they just made a big mess out of everything. And in a sense, right, in a sense, that is where we find ourselves in this morning's passage. The Thessalonians who we established in our last sermon on the one another's, were a model church. They were known for their love for one another. They were very good at ministering to each other. But even though they were very good at what they knew and how they cared for one another, they were still learning. They were still a church in progress. They had a good idea of what was going to happen in the future, but they still had some gaps in their knowledge. And that led them to have some grievous thoughts, some anxious thoughts, particularly about what's going to happen to fellow believers who died before Christ returned. What's going to happen to their believing friends, their believing families if they die before Jesus Christ comes back? Will they be okay? Will God remember them? Will they, be, will they rise from the dead too? Or will they be forgotten? Will they miss out on all of God's promises? And as you can see, right, the questions that they might have, it can lead from, it can turn from legitimate concern to unhelpful, unfruitful worry. As they begin to cycle and continue to fear and wonder, what is God doing? And these are, of course, not unreasonable concerns, but it can become unhelpful and sinful when we begin to rely on ourselves and not on the Lord. And so Paul, because he loved these believers very much, he sought to provide comfort for them. He sought to fill in the gaps in their knowledge, but you'll notice, right, the comfort that he provides, it's not the comfort that we would normally turn to. When we're hurting, when we're, cons- when we're consumed with worry and we're overwhelmed, what do we do? Right? Paul doesn't say, hey, Thessalonians, you're worried? Go treat yourself. Right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh, go distract yourself with busyness. Go eat some ice cream. Go binge watch your favorite show. He doesn't say that. Rather, he instructs them with the truth of God's word. Right, that's the comfort that he provides. And so this morning, we're going to find three truths. Three truths about comfort that can help anxious hearts find peace in God. Three truths about comfort that can help anxious hearts find peace in God. These truths are, um, these truths are comfort is rooted in God, rooted in God, Number two, comfort is rooted in God's word, and number three, comfort is meant to be shared. And if you miss these outline points right here, right now, it's okay. We're going to look at the uh, at the outline as we progress in the sermon. I just wanted to give you a roadmap for where we're going this morning. So, number one, comfort is rooted in God. Comfort is rooted in God. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So as we hinted in our introduction, the Thessalonians had some idea of what was going to happen in the future. Namely, they knew that Christ was going to return. He was going to return for them. And we know this because previously in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10, Paul makes mention of how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel. Right? When they heard the gospel, they turned away from worshiping idols in order to worship God, to serve God, and to wait for Jesus who will rescue them from the wrath to come. This was a fundamental truth that they learned early on in their, in their faith. In first Thessalonians three, ten to thirteen, Paul indicates that it is it is it is his great desire to go back to the Thessalonians, to return to them, so that he could finish their training in the scriptures, and so that God could strengthen their hearts in holiness, something that ultimately will be accomplished at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So there's this concept, there's this idea that Christ returns and he'll return with his people, for his people and with his people. And yet, with all of this information and teaching on what is to come, there was still a gap of knowledge that the Thessalonians had, right? And that's indicated by the fact that he says, we do not want you to be uninformed. Now, Paul had previously provided instruction about what is coming, uh, um, but there are still things that the Thessalonians were unclear on. And that happens, right? That happens for us, right? Um, When we learn something in our Bible reading, when we learn something from Sunday school or even on a Sunday morning uh, sermon, right? We may think we understand what we heard in the moment, right? But later when we go back home or when we think about it a little bit more, or if someone were to ask us, hey, what did you learn today? I was like, um, I don't know, (laughs) right? Or I forgot Um, something about Jesus, right? That's usually somewhat correct, Um, right? But we forget, right? And that happens, Uh, you know, or sometimes we just didn't think too deeply about it. We're all excited about a truth. And then someone asks us a good question about it. And we're just like, oh, yeah, um, let me get back to you on that, right? So it happens, right? Having more questions about what has been previously taught, that happens, and this is why Paul writes, right? He writes in order to answer some of these questions that the Thessalonians had. Now, Paul's particular ministry focus to the Thessalonians here is to provide hope in what was thought to be a hopeless situation. You see, in their concern that their siblings in Christ were lost to them or that they would miss out on God's promises. These Thessalonians were consumed by grief over their, their losses of their brothers and sisters in Christ. and that Paul wanted to help them understand that all hope was in fact not lost, or that there is still hope because they're with the Lord. And, and, you know, this this phrase here, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Some people, they look at that and they think, oh, Paul's saying here that Christians should not grieve when they lose loved ones. But that's not true. That couldn't be any farther from what Paul is actually saying here. Paul's not saying that when a believing loved one dies that we should not be sad that's not at all what he's saying nor should we ever say that either i've heard from christians who are grieving the loss of believing loved ones that one of the most unhelpful comments that they hear from well-meaning brothers and sisters in christ is something to the effect of wait why are you sad your loved one knows jesus they're okay they're fine they're with with him in heaven why are you grieving If that sounds cringy to you, it should. That's not helpful counsel at all. All It might be comforting maybe a little later on down the road. But for someone who's hurting and grieving in the moment of losing their loved one, that is so unhelpful. That is very actually unloving of us to say. Because in effect, what we're saying to them is, "Eh, your loss doesn't matter. They're fine grow up, put your big boy pants on, let's go. But that's not at all what we see here. In fact, even in the scriptures, even though there is a reality and a hope of resurrection from the dead, we still see that there is an appropriate time to grieve. After all, Christ himself grieved the loss of his good friend Lazarus in John eleven thirty five, right? We know that verse It's our little favorite trivia verse, right? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. You see, in context though, right? Jesus knew that he was fully capable of raising Lazarus from the dead. In fact, he knew that he was going to raise his friend from the dead, and yet, because of his sorrow over his friend's loss, over his friend's death, he. Wept. He wasn't weeping because he's like, oh man, these people are so silly. Why don't they just believe in me? Or he wasn't weeping because they didn't have faith. He wasn't weeping because, oh, what am I going to do with you? He was weeping because he was sad about his friend's death. Now, returning to 1 Thessalonians, we clearly see that Paul does not prohibit grieving, believer, uh, grieving believers who are uh, mourning their loved ones, or he's not pro- prohibiting. Uh, he's not prohibiting grieving. Or he knows that people will still grieve, that we will all grieve, but he doesn't want them to. He doesn't want us to grieve like people who have no hope. It's okay for us to grieve. It's okay for us to mourn. That's natural. That's human. But when we do grieve, we don't grieve as if all is lost. We don't grieve as if there is no hope whatsoever. And when he says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, he's talking about people who do not know Jesus. Or he's talking about people who are unbelievers. Now, we know in pop culture that, generally speaking, there is kind of like this hopeful, wishy feeling of, oh, I might see my loved one again. Right, they're, they're in heaven and they're in the clouds watching over me. Right, I will see them again. Right, there's even a song about that. Right. It's been a long day. I'm not gonna sing it. Anyways, right, but right, there, there is that hope right, that I'll see you again. Right, there is that hope that they have. But if you think about it, and I'm not trying to be callous here, but if you think about it, Is there any reason for that hope? Is there any reason for that hope for, uh, for anyone who is outside of Christ? If you want to look at it purely from a scientific standpoint, there is absolutely no hope, no reason to think about the concept of I am going to be reunited with my loved one in death. Right? It just ends with death. If you want to think about it in a more spiritual sense, right? Oh, science is a little too hard and cold for me. If you want to think about it in a spiritual sense and, uh, and whatnot, what reason What reason does anyone who believes in things other than Christ, people other than Christ, gods other than Christ, what reason do they have to believe that they will for sure be reunited with their loved ones? Right? There is no reason. There is no hope. No concrete hope anyway. It's all, I hope that it might happen, right? It's wishy-washy. It's faint. But with Christians, our hope is not like that. Our hope is sure. It is concrete. In verse 14, it says here, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You see, Paul demonstrates the concrete nature of our hope to see our believing loved ones by drawing that comparison to the sureness of Jesus' death and resurrection. For those of us who are Christians, right, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And Paul's saying, Just as surely as you believe that Jesus died and rose again, so sure is that reality that God will bring with him all who have died while waiting for Christ's return. You see, unbelievers will doubt, or they may doubt, the sureness of Christ's death and resurrection. But for Christians, the the reality of Christ's death and resurrection is everything to us. Right In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that if Christ did not die and rise from the grave, we of all people are the most to be pitied because we've wasted our lives worshiping a God who doesn't exist. Right, why are you here on this Sunday morning? Why aren't you watching preseason week two? Why are you here at a church singing songs? to somebody who maybe doesn't exist? Why do we even bother caring for one another? Why do we even bother loving one another? Why do we try to live a holy life? If this is all fake, if this is all just, eh, maybe Christ died, maybe he rose, then we are wasting our time. But that's not the case. Right? It is so sure that Christ died and rose again. That it is our life. It is everything that we're about. There would be no forgiveness of sin if it wasn't for Christ's death and resurrection. But we know we can be forgiven of our sins. Anything that we do that displeases the Lord whether it's in our thoughts, whether it's in uh, the words that we say or the things that we do, all those things that God counts as sin, that God counts as unrighteousness, uh, a violation of his perfect standard, all of those things would not be forgiven. They would still be on our account if Christ did not die and rise again, but he did. And because of that, that's why we have hope of forgiveness of sin, yes, but also that our loved ones will not be forgotten by God. That's the comparison that Paul makes. And notice one other thing too. When he talks about believers who have died waiting for Christ, he says here that these people have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism. It's a figure of speech. And he's saying they've fallen asleep. Right? So he's he knows that they're dead. right? He's not saying, like, oh, they're taking a nap. He knows that they're dead, but he says that they're fall, they've fallen asleep. However, when he describes Christ, right, he highlights Jesus' death rather than saying, oh, Jesus was asleep. Why does he do that? He highlights Jesus' death very specifically to point out the fact that Jesus really did die. Right? there's no mistaking it it 's very clear Jesus really did die, but he also rose from the dead, right? and because of that, right, because of that that 's why we can think of believing loved ones who die before Christ returns as only asleep because they 're not lost forever. He will bring uh, he, he will uh, they are currently with him in heaven, right? and they will be resurrected again, and since God will not abandon anyone. He saves, right? We can grieve when we lose our loved ones who are believers, but we don't have to grieve as those who have absolutely no hope. We can find comfort in the fact that God is faithful to his promises. In John 10, 28 to 29, Jesus tells the Jews in the temple who are questioning his identity that he will never lose those whom God the Father has given him. Right? Everyone To whom he gives eternal life has that eternal life forever. Forever. Neither God the Son nor God the Father will ever lose a believer whom they've saved because nobody can snatch them from their hands. They are greater than all. So, Christian, if you are here this morning and your thoughts or your circumstances are leaving you unsettled, you're anxious. You're worried. Much like the Thessalonians who were concerned about their deceased loved ones, perhaps even worried about their deceased loved ones. Remember God. Remember what he did in order to save you. Remember that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And then he raised him up to life so that not only can you be forgiven of your sins, but you can also be with him forever. All when we believe in him. Or that forgiveness of sin that we have. It's for everyone who will believe. You know, even though people will fail us in this life, God will never fail. And that's a comforting truth that we remind ourselves of when we're tempted to doubt that God cares. Or we're wondering, God, where are you? Now, as comforting as it might be to remember that our hope and our comfort is found in God himself, we're going to see a second truth that comforts our anxious hearts and gives us peace. And that is comfort is rooted in God's word. Comfort is rooted in God's word. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So how... Did the Thessalonians know that what Paul shared with them is true? Well, it's because Paul says, you can have hope because the word that I'm telling you is from God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, many scholars have written a lot about this particular verse. They're trying to figure out where specifically did Jesus say these things. Is this in the Gospels? Is this in the book of Acts? Is this one of those things that Jesus said that... No one wrote down, but we passed on verbally to one another over time. Where is this from? And those are actually reasonable explanations for what Paul means when he says that uh, what he says is uh, by the word of the Lord. But we also have to remember, too, that Paul is an inspired author of Scripture who revealed God's truth to God's people according to God's timing. And so... by the direction of the Holy Spirit and the will of God, there are times where he would tell people, where he would reveal to people what God wants them to know. And so whether or not Paul compiled other texts to help prove that God will take care of these believers who have passed on while waiting for Christ, or whether this is fresh revelation, that doesn't matter. What matters, what's the main point here is that God God will certainly take care of those believers who died while waiting for Christ. And not only, right, not only will God have these men and women with him, right, but those who died are not of second importance either, right, to those who are still alive when Christ comes. Now, what is this event that we're talking about, uh, where those who have fallen asleep will not be preceded by those who are alive. Well, in verses 16 to 17, uh, we see this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. The event that Paul describes here Is one commonly known as the rapture. Now you won't find that word specifically in your Bibles, um, but it is the label that has been given here to this event of being caught up together uh, with people being caught up together with the Lord. It's from the Latin. Now we could we could spend a whole sermon on talking about on the rapture. We could spend even a whole series talking about all the different views that good and godly people have had over the rapture over the years. We could do that. But what we want to recognize in our sermon this morning is what is the context of this description of the rapture? What is Paul's intent when he's talking about the rapture? Is he trying to give us some fuel for our tightly held beliefs that we've Uh, we've uh, earned or or learned from uh, studying a systematic theology. Is that what he's doing? Is this something that we get to throw in other people's faces? Is that that why this is here? No, it's not. What Paul is intending to do with this description of the rapture is to provide comfort. That's his intent in this text. So that's what we're going to stick to. If you want to learn more about the rapture, we can talk about that some other time. But the authorial intent for today is comfort. Right? Paul describes this event for our comfort. So let's look at that in those terms. Now, by the way, when I say that, I'm not saying that the details don't matter and that we can hold to whatever views we want to hold to. Right? I'm not saying that. The details do matter. Right? I don't, but I just don't want us to get hung up on theological systems here. Rather, we need to understand why Paul has this here. As we were reminded earlier, Jesus had previously told his people that no one will take away those God saves, right? No one will take us away from him. God's salvation is a sure salvation. It's not like he's holding a handful of sand and every now and then some of us drop out. It's a sure salvation. He holds onto us tightly. He won't lose any of us in any transition at any point in human history. He can and he will save everyone he chooses to save through Jesus Christ. And it is for that reason that Jesus came to to this earth after all. He came to save mankind. Salvation is super personal to Jesus. It's absolutely personal to him. Because you see here in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend. He doesn't have to do that. Right, you think about that. If Jesus wanted to bring us home, he could have just called us home. Right, he could have just commanded, hey, Christians, come home, and we would have done it. Right, he, could have, he could have sent an angel to come get us, but he didn't do that. He himself comes down to get us. Why? Because it matters to him. It's deeply personal to him. we also see here that when he does come to get us, or right, he descends from heaven with a shout. As we know from passages like John 14, 2 to 3, when Jesus is up in heaven, it's not just like he's just twiddling his thumbs wondering what to do next, right? But he is currently preparing a place for us in heaven so that, right, purpose statement, so that we will be with him. So not only is he preparing a place for us, but he is also uh, he is also seated at the right hand of God. Um, we know that from passages like Luke twenty two sixty nine, uh, Ephesians one twenty, Colossians three one, Hebrews one three. All of these passages tell us that Jesus is currently in heaven, and you know, yes, he is preparing a place for us. But he is seated at the right hand of God until that time, until the time comes when it's time for him to come get us. Until that proper day. And when he descends from heaven, he does so with a shout or a cry of command, as it says in the ESV. Now, what is that command? Well, in John 5, 25, we see that Jesus will call out. And those who are dead, namely those who are dead in him, right? Those who, who are believers, who've passed away while waiting for him. They will hear his cry of command and they will rise from the dead. Right? Isn't that incredible? Isn't that comforting? That the first thing that he does when he descends from heaven is he brings those who died while waiting for him to himself. He doesn't forget them. They're not of secondary importance. They did not fail him because they passed away. They are still very significant to him. So he brings them first. He brings them first. He makes sure that those who have believed in him will surely be with him. But that doesn't mean that those who are alive are of secondary importance. Because we do see in verse 17 that those who remain will be caught up together with Jesus and with these other resurrected saints in the air. So it's, it happens uh, sequentially, one after the other. Now the, those words are right, caught up. It refers to a strong and irresistible act. There is a definitiveness when it comes to how those who remain at the time of Christ's return will be brought to be with Christ, and those who are resurrected. It's, you know, I, I imagine that it would not be something like you know when the kids in Peter Pan first get. Get, uh, get the pixie dust and they're kind of like floating awkwardly and slowly all over the place. Right? It's not like a, a balloon that you let go of and you just kind of like see it fly off into the distance. It's not going to be like that. The, the, the strength of the Greek word here makes it seem so much stronger where it's like if you got, had magnets coming together. Right? It's, it's strong. It's irresistible. Um, and, and you know what? Like, I understand that that imagery can kind of be like a little hairy because you're just like wait if it's that strong like what if we're a believer in a bunker somewhere because of i don't know world war three will we like crash through the, the ceiling and like fly all the way up to, to Jesus? i don't know okay so don't ask me about physically how is it going to work uh you know what, what that's going to look like are we going to to head up to to christ with a tbi but then you know we'll be okay because he makes it all better like, i don't know so he'll work out those details i don't i don't know exactly what's going to happen right but All I know is the most important thing is at the end of verse 17. The end result of the rapture is that we will always be with the Lord. Isn't that cool? Isn't that encouraging? That we will always be with the Lord. The whole point of the rapture is that we will be with him forever. It doesn't matter Anymore. It won't matter anymore how much you've sinned. And how much that sin that you've committed makes you feel distant from God. It doesn't matter because you won't feel that ever again. It doesn't matter how much you're doubting because you won't feel that ever again. There is nothing, or there will be nothing that will separate you from his love for you. You will always be with him. Always. That is so, so beautiful. That is so encouraging to know that we will always be with him, that nothing will separate us from him. There is no wonder whether you'll miss out on his will or if you'll miss out on his promises because he'll fulfill it all. You'll always be with him. He'll take care of all of those details. And when we think, When we think about the comfort that God extends to us, that comfort is rooted in the fact that he's good for it. God is good for it. What he says, he surely will do. He's trustworthy to the max. In Isaiah 55, 10 to 11, God says this, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. When we remind our anxious hearts that God can be trusted, that we can take him at his word. We can find peace because we know that God's word always accomplishes his will for our lives. That analogy that he gives, that rain and snow water the earth and allow for the plants to grow and produce food for us, that's a sure thing. I don't know of any situation where rain falls on the earth and snow falls on the earth, and we don't see plants grow. Right? That's a sure thing. Okay, maybe they don't grow if they're plastic, but those aren't really plants then, right? So it's a sure thing that he's talking about. So we don't have to worry about missing out on God's will for our lives. We don't have to worry about him not following through on his promises. We don't have to worry about all of those what-ifs that are in our mind like a car stuck in the mud and the wheels are spinning and there's mud flying everywhere but it goes nowhere. We don't have to worry about those things. Nobody, nobody can come in and disrupt his plans. Nobody can surprise him. And so, as Paul points the Thessalonians to what God has revealed to help them find peace in their hearts as they think about their loved ones, let us also remember what God has said, what God has done, so that we too can find peace in our hearts about our life circumstances. And that leads us to our third truth about comfort that can help our anxious hearts find peace in God, and that is comfort is meant to be shared. Comfort is meant to be shared. Verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. I would venture to guess that if you saw the passage I was about to preach on this morning, and you saw that it was a passage about the rapture, you'd be like, how am I supposed to find comfort in this? Right, I, I ventured to guess that that, that, that would probably be your, get, that, your, your thought. But yet here we are. Right? Paul points to the rapture to help us find comfort. When our legitimate concerns begin to grow into sinful worry and distrust in God, what happens is our view of God becomes less clear. It's like if you pulled out your driving sunglasses from your your car uh, visor, and it's full of smudges, right? Because you put your thumbs on your lenses, right? When that happens, you can't see very clearly what's in front of you, right? You can kind of see it, but not really, right? And as we progress from worry to anxiety to fear, the view of God becomes less and less and less. To the point where sometimes we don't even see God at all. That's what we call a panic attack. When the reality of God is completely gone and your body is in fight or flight response and you're acting as if danger is here. When the view of God is gone, we're not trusting him. We're not trusting him. We've uh, We've lost full sight of him. But what Paul does here when he points the Thessalonians back to who God is and what he's going to do. He's trying to restore their vision of God. He's trying to help them see even more clearly. He's giving them water and a lens cloth to help them clean their glasses so that they can see. Don't use tissues. Okay, your optometrist will get mad. Or your shirt. Don't do that either. Use the lens cloth. Anyways, when we remember the big picture, when we can see it clearly, when we can see God and what he is doing it is far easier for us to trust our uncertain futures over to him it's easier said than done though right to know that god cares for us but to actually trust him right is a little harder god knows that we often need help in maintaining a proper view of him and that's why he gives us the church That's why he gives us one another. When Paul tells the Thessalonians to comfort one another with the truths of the rapture, he wants them to help each other remember what God is doing. He wants them to remember that you're not alone, that God will not abandon you, that Christ will indeed return for you just like he said. You know, whether we are dead by the time that Christ returns or whether we're alive, we can... Rest safely in the confidence that he actually is going to come back and he's going to allow for us to be with him forever. You know, often when we are overwhelmed with our worries or our burdens, we begin to feel isolated. We begin to feel as if nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody can understand. And so we try and soldier on on our own. We shut down, and we try and take it on, take it by ourselves. But you know that feeling of isolation. That doesn't need to be true, if we choose to use God's provision of our church family to help us in our troubles, to help us through our troubles. In First Corinthians 10:13, we are reminded that. We are never truly alone in this life, right? These temptations that we might feel in this life to either, dist- to either not believe in God, not put our faith in him uh, or any other struggles that we might have, right? These, these feelings, these emotions are things that other saints have experienced in their lives as well. And that's why he says that no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, right? You are not alone in this. There are other people who have had these doubts before, had these temptations that they've had to fight through before. But God is faithful. He's not going to let you get crushed and destroyed by temptation. That's why he gives us each other. He gives us each other so that we can be with one another, that we can encourage one another. We can tell each other testimony of what God has done time and time and time again so that we can have hope so that we can know that though our situations may not be exactly like what, other person, what another person has gone through, that we can learn from their faith, that we can learn from their experience, and we can also similarly cling to the Lord just as they have. And that's the reason why we will be able to have a way of escape. It's not that you're clever. It's not that your, your willpower is better than anybody else's. Right? The way of escape is found in the Lord right? He himself gives you the way of escape. It's through him, right? And even as he gives you the way of escape, right, he brings other Christians alongside so that you will find that way of escape. And when you forget, right, and you step in it for the umpteenth time, right, they're the ones who pull you back out and help you redirect, God can use our fellow Christians to help us find that way of escape. We see that also in 2 Corinthians 1, to 3-4. Right, This is the passage that was our call to worship. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Any time that we experience God's comfort in our lives, it's not just for us. It's not just for our sake. God allows for us to go through trials, not just for the strengthening of our own faith, but so that we can also strengthen the faith of those around us. And when we share how God has comforted us with other people, they too can be encouraged, inspired, reminded to trust God to find the peace that can be found only in him. They too can remember God's big picture plan, that he, doesn't, that he doesn't just let things happen to people for no good reason, but he is entirely purposeful in what he allows into our lives. Now, we might not always know why God has allowed certain trials and difficulties into our lives. But let me tell you, when the inexplicable happens, we can at least lean on the fact that God is good. Right? We know that for sure. Right? That's a truth that, we, uh, that, that is concrete for us. He is good, that he loves us, that he is coming back for us, and that we are not alone. That might seem to be small comfort for those of you who are going through some extremely tough trials. And I know that within our church family, there are a lot of tough trials going on right now. But don't forget that even as tough as your trials might be, God still loves you. God has not forgotten you. And that even though we don't see the purpose in what we're going through, he is being entirely purposeful in allowing for us to go through these things. He doesn't allow trials into your life, lives because he's bored. And he's just wondering what will happen next. He doesn't allow trials into your lives because, oh, science experiment. Let's see what happens if I do this to this person. He already knows those things. He already knows how we're going to respond. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's omniscient. So he's not doing this out of curiosity as to say, oh what will you do how will you respond. He allows trials into our lives so that we can learn and so that we can help other people. If you find yourself in a tough trial remember that God cares for you and that he wants you to learn from your trials for your faith for your faith but also so that you can strengthen other people as well. Yes, sometimes our trials are our own doing. Right? It's the consequence of our own actions, but even then, God still cares for you. Right? even then God still cares for you. Yes, we will have to bear the consequences of our own actions, and we'll have to deal with that,? Right? That's how it always is. but, right, still, it's something to embrace. It's something to grow from. And so let me close us with a final passage to encourage us to, to do that. First Peter five: six to11. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. And here's my favorite. One of my favorite verses. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. I'm sure many of you did not expect to learn how to find comfort in a passage that speaks of the rapture. But what we were reminded in this, excuse me, what we were reminded from this chapter is that comfort is rooted in God himself, is rooted in his word. And it's also meant to be shared with others. It might seem a little weird to look at the big picture of God's salvation plan for comfort. But in a world of uncertainty, the certainty of God's plan to bring his people back to himself It's extremely comforting because you can lean on that. You can hold that. You can take that all the way to the bank. We may not be uh, exactly like the Thessalonians in the sense that our concerns are based off of unanswered questions and ignorance of what will happen next. But what we learn from Paul's ministry to them is that our concerns, our anxious thoughts can be soothed by remembering who God is, what he has done, what he will do, and the fact that nobody can stop him. God cares about all of our life struggles, not just the big ones, the small ones too. He cares about all of our life struggles, and he can and will use those struggles to help us grow deeper in our faith and so that we can help others grow deeper in their faith as well. And so don't find your comfort in distractions, in busying yourself, in TV or in Food or whatever, find your comfort in God and in the truth that is found in His Word. For those of you who like to have discussion questions to help you meditate on the truths of Scripture or uh, to talk about it with others, here are some questions that we can think about um, either later today or during the week. Number one, how can the reminder that Christ is coming again be a comfort to those who are anxious or hurting? Number two, what are some practical ways that we can compassionately and empathetically comfort one another with the truth that is found in God's word? Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your love and for the great hope that we have in you and in your word. We know, Lord, that as sure as as it is that Christ died and rose again, so sure will it be that we will always be with you. And that is something that can be very comforting for us to know, especially when there are so many uncertainties in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would grow more in our love and appreciation of you and who you are, and, and that would cause us to desire to minister to one another also. We pray that as we sing songs in response to these truths, that you would be pleased, that you would be glorified as we rejoice in what you've done. May we comfort one, one another with these words. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.